Welcome to Managing Marketing and today I'm talking with Ben Sharp who is a commercial business leader and mentor, investor and non-executive director chairman. And now we can add to that list a LinkedIn viral sensation. Welcome Ben. <laughs> Thanks Darren. Uh, yeah, it's quite, quite hilarious to be referenced as a LinkedIn or viral sensation. It was definitely not the intention when I... Uh, when I started writing this content about two weeks ago. Well, look, and that's the reason that I wanted to sit down and have a chat because you know, I was sitting there flicking through my uh, LinkedIn feed and suddenly I see this uh, letter from the New South Wales Police and, and I love the first line of your post, which is, I'm not a criminal. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny. We might, we might get into it in terms of, you know, what is it about a social media post that causes it to go viral? Um, but I'll tell you what, uh, having any marketing message needs to have a hook. You mm. need to engage people right at the start. Um, that was not the intention when I, when I wrote this initial piece of content two weeks ago. I published it four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. How many people are actually active on LinkedIn at four o'clock on you a Friday afternoon? You would be afternoon? surprised. You would be surprised. But maybe. Countdown, countdown to uh, the weekend. Yeah. Probably sitting there uh, whiling time away. But look, before we get into that, because I think uh, the other interesting thing is just looking through your professional history. Because it's not like you're just an average Joe on the street, though you know, I'm sure you'd say that. But uh, you've had a very extensive career in marketing, in technology, um, and uh, in, in digital data. Uh, so well, let's just talk about that a bit, you know, because I noticed you started off in, in recruitment at uh, Robert Walters. Yep, uh, awesome experience, 98, 99, 2000. Uh, Robert Walters in the UK. Yep. Uh, I was um, a 25, 26-year-old Aussie that turned up in London and went, oh, I'm just going to get a job doing something. Yeah. Uh, and I fell into working in recruitment as many Aussies do. Uh, it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we were recruiting sales and marketing teams for startup.coms in 98, 99, 2000. So you can imagine mm. the buzz and excitement that uh, that existed in the market there. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a sales role. It was a, it was a lot of fun and it was probably the only thing I could probably... Um, equate it to was probably working in Wall Street in the 80s, which I obviously never had an opportunity to, to do so. <laughs> but you've seen the wolf of Wall Street, so uh, absolutely, you that's what it was like. <laughs> it was probably not quite that bad, but uh, <laughs> but it was. Uh, but we it, get it. A young a young man, a young Aussie in London, yes. uh, having a lot of fun. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And was it Yahoo that brought you back to Australia? Or was that something that you'd already come back and you landed working? No, I, I came back to Australia. Um, I came back with my then girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, and we went travelling. Oh, you for, had a lot of fun in London then. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I brought home a life-size souvenir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we came back, we went travelling, and uh, then, you know, in 2001, I went, I need to get a job. Um, what's that job going to be? Is it going to be recruitment um, in Australia or is it going to be something else? And uh, quite... Quite luckily, I um, had a number of people that I knew inside Yahoo in, in Australia here and got a chance to meet Tony Four and Liz Joyce and Craig Galvin and a whole bunch of other people that had been at Yahoo for some time. And I 
uh, saw a great opportunity to work in the sales team at Yahoo. And uh, I think they obviously saw something great in my sales ability at the time to help that business further grow. It was also a real boom time for Yahoo, wasn't it? Yahoo. It was amazing. Yeah. Like that was, it was probably the first time personally that I had an opportunity to go and work in an environment where um, the business had a real purpose. Um, they engaged uh, people culturally. Um, you know, what was in, uh, drilled into us as Yahoo's was, you know, you bled purple, you lived the brand. Uh, it was obviously, um, uh, you know, an environment where there was massive interest in internet advertising mm -hmm. at a very embryonic stage. And uh, the time at Yahoo, especially the first couple of years, preceded the establishment of the IAB. So there was no universal ad package. Um, there was no use of data. Um, the ad formats that we were selling were very, very basic. They were text links and, and very small banners. And there was a degree of targeting in, in terms of how those ads appeared on the site, but it was, um, do you want to appear on the front page of Yahoo? Yes, you get it for the whole day. Or do you want to you know, try and engage a male customer or ma male potential customer, let's put your ad in finance or sport. So yeah. it was- It was very traditional, yeah, borrowed a lot from traditional media uh, selling strategies. Yeah. Absolutely, that was exactly what it, uh, what it was. It just happened to distribute content and the ad experience online. Um, in a very static environment, um, which is obviously very different to how internet advertising operates now. Well, not a big leap then to go to Allure Media and then Conversant Media, is it, from uh, Yahoo? Absolutely. What, what was the difference for you? Uh, spent six years at Yahoo. I absolutely loved it. Um, I, I love very much the early stages of, uh, of Yahoo when it was very entrepreneurial. Uh, and we felt like we were making a real difference in the, in the market. And uh, when I left Yahoo, I had these desires to go and start my own business. Um, I didn't exactly know what that new business was going to be, but I had some ideas on you know what the what the construct yeah. could uh, could look like. Um, the Allure Media business uh, came about through a three way conversation between uh, myself, um, a group of investors uh, at Netus at the time, who were currently okay. Airtree, and um, Chris Jans, and uh, they had an idea on a very similar um, publishing model to what I'd uh, been speaking to them about. Um, probably didn't have a good view on how to monetize it, but they were um, had a good idea on how to establish um, a brand and um, and content and a product in the in the market. So. Um, the idea behind Allure Media was to create a local publishing platform um, with US content that we would own the local um, mm -hmm. media asset and blend the uh, US content from sites like Gizmodo, Business Insider, Pop Sugar, and others um, with locally generated um, content. So uh, what we did with Allure was innovate, um, or actually really drive innovation in the market in a couple of ways. Uh, the first was um, a disruptive publishing model where mm -hmm. we encouraged our journalists um, to to write um, a large amount of content, but also quality content. So they were incentivized on the amount of content that they wrote and the page views that were generated off the back right. of that. In 2007, no yeah. editor was no. thinking um, in terms of a risk strategy, you know, in terms of how they could be compensated. So we um, we had a different way of, you know, getting them to work, which was which but was great. But that was the good thing, wasn't it? That you absolutely could, you could try these things out. Yeah, you know? Ab absolutely. And I also like it because I see the two thousands before yeah. we had the you know the global financial crisis recession. Those the earlier part, there was still a sense of it was interactive media rather than this big lump of what's called digital media. 
you know, the, Absolutely. The, the things like page views and, and content mm. were still thought of as a way of interacting and engaging an audience rather than just bombarding millions of people. A a absolutely. Um, Allure was a niche publisher, targeted content, um, uh, you know, kind of learnt maybe somewhat from the magazine publishing model, but, um, uh, you know, really innovated uh, the um, content strategy, but also the commercial strategy. Mm. When we um, developed the business, we went, let's go to market and not, not just sell banners and buttons, let's go and sell better ways of clients wanting to engage the audience. Mm. We were the first publisher in Australia to offer a form of native content. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, native content at the very first couple of times was ridiculous looking back on it. It was republishing <laughs> a press release yeah. um, with, you know, some ads around it. Uh, but, you know, we evolved on that and then we got the editors to, um, uh, I, get, I guess, get more strategic in terms of mm. what that looked like and how it blended with the site. But the other things that we did was we were the first publisher that um, reskinned a page for, uh, for an advertiser. Oh, okay. um, but also we did a couple of things as well where we gave some advertisers 100% share of voice of a page or a section um, and blog, blog pages as many other um, websites can be really, really deep so they go a long way mm. below the fold. Um, we stripped off all, stripped off all ads um, except for one and we fixed that ad in view um, above the fold for 100% of the time that a user right. was on a page. So we were able to charge a premium and we're also able to say to an advertiser, you get 100% share of yeah, voice. because no matter, as the user scrolls... The ad was so, always there. Yeah. So there was a premium attached to the ad and the effectiveness of that ad was significantly higher than um, an ad that disappeared or was one of five or six ads on a particular page. Yeah, no, and not as much viewability issue there. Uh, there was no issue around viewability because okay, every ad that served. Well, it was it was interesting because I sat on um, one of the industry boards at the time uh, through the um, Audit Bureau of Australia at the time with mm -hmm. Paul Dovis and, and others, and that was around the time that um, many sites were. Um, uh, reporting traffic based just on page views, not mm. on unique audience, and page views were being artificially inflated through auto refresh. Yep. Um, and it was something that we did not do. Um, there was no need to. And, uh, you know, we felt as though we had a, um, a credible way of publishing and reporting on our traffic. Mm. Um, and you got, you're the chair of the IAB Technology Council. Absolutely. That would have been interesting. Oh, listen, it was, it was awesome. Uh, that was with um, Alice Manners about three um, or possibly four years ago now where uh, the IAB recognised that their um, member base and the board composition was very one-dimensional and um, there was a need to embrace the uh, technology businesses that were emerging at mm. the stage. So DSPs, retargeting platforms, yeah, the uh, DPs. The, the, the ad tech, you know, yeah. establishment of ad tech, which four years ago... Um, some existed um, and obviously more exist now than they did four years ago. So it was an opportunity for the ad tech community in Australia to really influence um, uh, best process, you know, how you would use data, um, uh, you know, educate the market around ad tech and also, also ensure that, you know, some of the issues that we, we're now seeing, fraud, viewability, um, you know, things like that would be would be minimised. Because you know, sometimes when you read all of the trade press or trade media, it's all, put, you know, the advertisers pointing the finger. But in actual fact, um, most of the publishers and most of the ad tech companies actually also want to have a very clear, clean, transparent um, ecosystem supply chain, don't they? I mean, Absolutely. it's only it's only really the criminals and the con men that uh, really benefit from this. 
Absolutely. I think, you know, any discussion around transparency, viewability, um, ad fraud, um, uh, any problems there um, cause issues for everyone in the ecosystem, yeah. the publishers and uh, the ad tech, you know, um, players in the middle. As an ad tech platform, um, you want to be able to deliver 100% viewable inventory um, that people want to engage with on the right device at the right time. Um, at, but you rely very much, partly on your own technology, but you rely on your supply partners as well. So, um, you know, the, the ad tech environment or ad tech players, um, if they're doing the right thing, um, which most of them are, like mm. to be honest, most, most of them yeah. are, do have the right uh, methodology and, and ways well, of wanting to work. I don't think anyone goes into business to work out how to rip every, all their customers off, do you they? Would, you would hope that's the case. <laughs> well, <laughs> you'd have to be pretty dodgy. Yeah. But um, do you think it's fair to say that most people would know you because you had a very big job with uh, running AdRoll in Australia? Absolutely. You know, we launched AdRoll at the end of 2013, beginning of 2014. Um, the purpose for AdRoll at the time was to uh, educate um, the market about ad technology, um, to recruit fantastic staff and, um, you know, skill them up in a very different way than otherwise they would have been able to do with existing players and to um, really inform the market on the benefits of data-driven marketing, which yeah. is, um, you know, what, uh, what AdRoll does um, as a retargeting platform and mm -hmm. as well as some of the other um, products that it delivers as well. And, you know, regional role, Australia, New Zealand and uh, parts of Southeast Asia, um, you know, we very much um, informed and influenced the market in a positive way um, on the benefits of using data to drive your um, advertising and marketing strategy. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of um, market activity outside of just selling to people. It was white papers, it was um, speaking at events mm. and... Uh, it was a very high profile business, wasn't it? Because absolutely. you did a lot of content marketing, you did a lot of uh, yeah. public you know, public relations. Uh, yeah. I remember there were very few uh, industry events where AdRoll wasn't represented. So, you know, yeah. I think kudos to uh, the marketing of that, the way it was positioned, it was really yeah, quite effective. Absolutely. My, my goal in setting that up was to run the sales and the marketing um, uh, businesses or, or teams together. They mm -hmm. were a joint force. Um, and we considered uh, the goals between sales and marketing to be exactly the same. Yeah. So um, it was pointless for marketing to go off in one direction, not being supported by sales and vice versa. Um, and Interesting how legacy businesses really struggle with that. Absolutely. And yet when yep. you've got a, a company that you basically, you might, you know, could be called a startup from the day it started, yep. but you know, you're able to structure that and put the performance metrics in place to mm -hmm. build that alignment very quickly and yep. you get the benefits from it. Absolutely. You know, what, what does any business need to do? What they need to... Um, identify a segment of customers they want to go and sell to. They need to attract them into their sales funnel. Um, they need to somehow convert them um, and then retain and grow mm. those um, uh, those customers over time. So and and then also have awareness so that people are already uh, predisposed because they feel that they know the business. So you don't spend the first half an hour of your sales pitch telling people who you are. <laughs> that, that's right. So um, and that's where there's um, a, a blended responsibility between the sales function and the marketing team to, mm. to work together because a salesperson can go out there and do lots of phone calls to try and um, generate a prospect. 
it's probably a very inefficient way of doing things. Whereas if you can warm people up um, at this, uh, you know, identify yourself, warm people up at the start of the funnel, get then bring salespeople in, but then support um, your sales funnel with ongoing education, with ongoing content it actually increases the chances of conversion mm, and it also absolutely. then increases the chances that your clients will want to stay with you because they you're constantly talking to them and um, and educating them, not not just about your own product, but about the wider industry and, uh, and other marketing challenges that they'll have. Yeah, no, it, it uh, drives me crazy the way um, uh, a lot of B2B businesses uh, think that sales and mar- marketing is basically just a support to sales. You know, it's there to produce all. And yet, when you get the two working hand in glove, mm. you get such a powerful um, uh, result because you know any marketer that thinks they can create brand mm. without working with sales, because if you've got a sales team, that's going to be the brand for your customer. The way Absolutely. they interact and work. Likewise, if you've got salespeople that don't understand the longer term opportunities of building a brand, mm. because that's where next quarter sales are going to come from, or next year's sales, mm. is by building that brand. It seems logical when you say it, but we see company after company struggle with it because they've got one trying to meet quarterly yep. Um, numbers and the other one trying to build long-term results so well if if you think about the culture of an organization um, a culture of the organization is going to be influenced by partly the purpose or vision um, of that business um, and very much influenced once again by the executive or management team Um, now if the management team are short-term in their thinking and they're going god I've got to hit this month's uh, quota Mm -hmm. you know we've got to report to the board you know on three monthly results what does the sales and market team do they focus on that they focus on the short term so they're constantly chasing their tail whereas if you have a much broader view on you know your ideal customer segment how you want to communicate with them um, yes uh, you know um, short-term goals are important but they need to be balanced with a grow your market view. share you know uh, dominate a particular segments that, that's right and you know on a, I guess a micro level and this was probably not through design design um, at the time but there was a period at um, Adroll where we actually ramped down our brand activity and invested more into lead driving activity through our, our marketing budget. And you know what we noticed? We noticed that the cost per acquisition went up. Went up. Yeah. Um, because uh, it you showed work that that's exactly right. The so work there, there's a balance between how much you spend on brand and how much you spend on lead driving mm-hmm. activity. Um, and uh, you have to do both. Exactly. Yeah. Now, um, you've got your own uh, sort of entity, Edge yes. Consulting, that you do consulting and investments and all sorts. It sounds fascinating. Yeah. Because uh, you know, uh, you're the chair of the board and an investor in Audience Republic. And you're also, and I love this, entrepreneur in residence. At, uh, <laughs> I, I love the title as well. <laughs> uh, Queensland University of Technology. So yeah. what's this mean for you today? Um, so I've had my own consultancy uh, business on the on the side as my side hustle, yeah. I guess you call it, for um, six years. Um, through that, I've invested into a number of businesses. Conversant Media was one of them that I invested into mm-hmm. and did some work with uh, from about 2012 onwards. Um, and I've also uh, done consultancy work and investments with a range of other businesses. Um, Audience Republic is one of them. Uh, and what I typically... Um, uh, focus on through that consultancy is early stage, high growth businesses in the technology um, and media space, 
um, that well, need that's what to, you know. <laughs> that's what I know, absolutely, um, that need to grow through the setup of the right type of sales and marketing team. So mm-hmm. most people that I work with um, engage me because they say, hey, I've got one salesperson, but I think I need more. What's mm-hmm. the best way to go about doing it? So um, my approach with them is to say, okay, let's actually look at who you're trying to sell to, yep. um, segment it down, apply the right messages, then structure your team accordingly and give the team the right um, processes and tools to work with so that they can be successful uh, both short and uh, and long term. So uh, would it be fair to say you're in, as an investor, you bring both capital and intellectual capital to the uh, the party? Absolutely. I th- any, um, any business that I've invested into, um, and I talk you know, financial investment. I only invest into businesses where I can see that I can add some form of strategic value. Um, otherwise, if you are throwing money at an idea, um, it's uh, I wouldn't even call it an educated gamble. It's a, it's a gamble. You might as yeah. well go and uh, bet on crypt- <laughs> cryptocurrency or something. Come like on, that. number six. Come on, <laughs> yeah, number six. <laughs> that, that's right. And I think you know anything that you go into um, financially. <laughs> You know, you want to make sure that you understand the business, you yeah. understand the founding team, um, and that you can add some add some value. What is it? There's a great quote, never invest in anything you don't understand. Absolutely. Never and, work in anything you don't understand. And, and the person that uh, reminded me of that recently said, if more marketers did that, they probably, the digital uh, media wouldn't have grown so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. So in 2013, uh, 2013, I think it was, when... Uh, I was looking for my next job and uh, it was uh, before I started at AdRoll. I think it was before I found AdRoll. Mm. Um, and I remember going and speaking to lots of different technology-related businesses and I just didn't get what most of them were talking about. I just didn't understand their product, their approach to market, um, uh, who they were competing with, um, or um, there was just lots of clones of each other um, where you'd kind of mm. say, oh, you're just like these guys over here. But they're unique from their perspective because they had this idea and yeah. they haven't actually checked the marketplace to see, you know, because they've had it, it must yeah. be unique. I, I went through the same thing, it, it, especially the, you know, around... Uh, mid two thousand, you know, two thousand five. Mm. Um, lots of people that were getting into ad tech, martech, mm. would come to me and go, "You know the market, you know." And I keep saying, "So what's the business model again?" You know, yep. I still had that very traditional. And they go, "Oh, we'll just do advertising." And yeah. I go, "No, uh, absolutely." I think um, uh, anyone that creates a business needs to have um, a customer view on what mm. they're doing. Um, they need to understand who it is they are selling to, what the problem they're trying to solve. Yeah, what's the opportunity? What's the that, problem that's or right. opportunity? And there's, yeah. listen, there's no problem in your business iterating on existing players mm. in market, right? Mm. So, you know, that that is, you know, every, every new business, it's very rare that you find an entire new business, yeah. a new business idea that's never been done in any way by anyone else in the past. So there's always going to be degrees of iteration. Um, however, to um, not being able to explain what it is that you do in a very cohesive or coherent form is a problem. Um, and almost being the same as everyone else is not uh, not all that helpful. So I think anyone that um, starts a business, not only starts a business but works in a business of any size, needs to very clearly articulate, um, this is why I've created my business and my, this is my passion for That's it, right. yeah. and this is the problem we're trying to solve for this customer segment. Sort of the elevator pitch, isn't it? That's right. An elevator pitch should be very short and sharp, and it doesn't matter who you're speaking to. And explain to. the value that you're creating. That's right. And whether you're speaking to your mate in the pub, mm. um, a supplier, 
um, internal staff um, or, you know, your business partners. It needs to be the same message, but everyone needs to understand what it is you do. Now, Ben, you're clearly a technology curious person. So I'm wondering, think back to the day that you downloaded the BP Me app. Did you even have any inkling how that action was one day going to turn you into a a LinkedIn viral sensation? Um, No, not not at all. Um, (laughs) I'll probably start off by saying that I have a personal passion for new technology, new and emerging technology. Um, When I find new, um, you know, technology, new tools to use that may in some way benefit either what I do personally on a day-to-day basis or how you can operate in your business, um, I want to trial lots of different things. So when I saw the BP Me app, I thought, this is awesome. You mean I can just rock up at the service station, not have to walk into the shop and stand in a queue, I can fill up and then drive away um, straight away. And I also don't need to worry about taking my credit card with me everywhere that I go. I'm trying to rationalize the number of things I carry around. It's all in my phone. So I thought this is an awesome piece of technology and an awesome app and I'm going to give it a go. Yeah, well, it's probably the you don't even have to pay for it that got you into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have, uh, I had, and as I always do, I have full intentions of paying for any product or service uh, that I that I but that I use. <laughs> for those that, uh, aren't, well, how many uh, people viewed your LinkedIn post about what happened with the BP Me app? Was uh, it two hundred thousand or something? Uh, it's actually continuing to grow. We're up over three hundred and fifty thousand. As of um, this morning. Okay, so for those people listening to us that aren't those three hundred and fifty thousand, um, can you give us a or give a, uh, a view of what happened? Absolutely. Uh, I've been using the BP Me app for a couple of months, and I thought it was really convenient. Um, I uh, went away on holidays. I came home um, and you know got all my mail, and there was a letter from the police, and I'm like, that's a bit unusual. Um, I wonder what it is. So I opened it up, I read this letter, and the letter um, basically said, uh, you know, I'm from Chatswood Police Station, you've uh, tried to, or you filled up with petrol on this date at this service station. Um, You apparently tried to use the BP Me app, but it um, didn't work. You owe the service station $79.50. Please get in contact with me, and we strongly suggest that you um, go back to the service station and uh, pay the outstanding amount. Otherwise, we'll be taking it further. And I thought... (laughs) Sorry, but um, that is a really almost overreaction from my perspective to what they clearly knew that the app had failed and yet they haven't come to you. They've gone to the New South Wales police. It, was, it, is, it still astounds me that that is what's happened. Yeah, um, that's the response. Yeah, I know. It, it, it's, it's hilarious. So when I saw this... when you sign up for the app, I remember, because I did it myself. You, you put know, all your details yeah, in there. You put all, you know, they know exactly who I am and how to yeah. contact me. Why didn't someone from the uh, petrol station just phone up and go, hey, uh, you haven't paid, can you come back and pay? Absolutely. Well, the craziest thing about this was that... Um, so I, when I received the letter, I emailed the, um, the police officer... Who his name was attached to the, the email. Um, I also looked in my transaction history on the BP Me app and I did pay for the fuel. Right. So, but the transaction did not happen immediately as it should have. The transaction happened two days later. Ah, so, okay. so um, it's clearly a technology issue, it was a process clearly issue. Clearly technology and process issue, which I can get to in a, in a second as well. 
Um, so I sent a screen grab of the my transaction history to the police officer and I said, I'm offended um, to receive this email because I've paid for the fuel. Um, and he did respond to me and said, uh, yeah, we were ultimately advised by BP that you did pay um, and you're not the first person that this has happened to. Oh, so, no. And I got, a, I got a sense in the tone from the police officer that... Uh, they're a bit they're, peeved? They're a bit frustrated <laughs> that they've become debt collectors for yeah, BP because of, because of a, a business process like this. So um, so when, I, when this happened, I thought, this is quite interesting. You know, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. Um, I've got a large connection base and I put a lot of business-related content on there. Um, uh, you know, and I thought, oh, this will create some interesting content for social media. And um, I have to say, when I saw it, that's what struck me was that you, it wasn't like you were just having an angry rant. You actually did present it really well as this is almost like a case study. This is a case study of where technology and process and, and customer uh, experience has gone horribly wrong. Absolutely. And... If I'd have wanted to be a social media, um, uh, I, I guess, you know, rant in um, yeah, social Facebook media. Facebook and Twitter. I would have put it on Facebook. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, but I didn't because I went, you know, there, there's a really good um, example here of how you blend customer data and um, customer experience together. Yeah. So published at four o'clock on Friday afternoon. I thought it'd be a fairly quiet time. I didn't really expect much of it other than, hey, it's just another piece of content that I, that I publish. Now, I've actually had a look at the majority of my, uh, my recent posts and, you know, my posts get something like, you know, 500 to 1500 views um, when I publish something. This has had 350,000 views. So it's crazy. The next highest it's piece It's gone of, nuts. It's gone nuts. Absolutely. As I've said in something more recently, um, the highest, the, the next highest piece of content that I've ever published on LinkedIn had about 25,000 views. So this is... 12, 13 times higher again. Yeah. So there was Amazing. something about You are this. a viral sensation. Well, <laughs> mate, mate, I, don't, I don't know whether it's me personally or it is... The topic. Um, a, a combination of the topic, um, mm. the experience, um, uh, the frustration that people may have with fuel companies, mm -hmm. um, uh, maybe the way in which I framed the, um, the content in terms of starting it as I'm no criminal. Um, well, I think that, you know, you're right. As a uh, copywriter myself... Yep. Uh, that I'm not, I'm no criminal yep. is a great hook because yep. it's like, oh, what? Let me get into this, you know, yep. because I want to know why you, why you could be considered a criminal. Yep. And then the visual was the photo yep. of the letter. Absolutely. So, you know, with the New South Wales police clearly uh, emblazoned there. Yeah, I, th I think... Um it probably, there were multiple factors um, com uh, combining at the same time to drive not only awareness, but interest in in this particular story. Um, uh, there are, you know, I think most a lot of people resent the fuel companies to start with because most of us feel as though we are in some way being gouged um, when we fill up for fuel. And uh, the pricing is irrational because you can fill up, I think today, the price of petrol is 20 cents higher than it was yesterday. So, mm. you know, I think we, we all resent having to buy fuel. We feel manipulated. Ab absolutely. So I think that's one That's one factor. The second factor is, um, you know, in Australia, we love the underdog, don't we? You know, yeah. the David Goliath factor, um, individual taking on a corporate, putting them under pressure. Um, I think there's an element of that. Um, I think there's also uh, an element of... 
uh, when I noticed um, page views starting to increase, the majority of people that were sharing and commenting uh, tended to be um, marketers or people in customer experience roles who were sharing it amongst their peer group once again. So I think they were using it as a case study. And I could almost forecast, I could see lots of these consumer brands and I could imagine these teams of you know four people in marketing probably sitting around on the Monday or Tuesday morning going, we're about to launch something Let's just stop for a sec and let's go back and test every potential variable before we send it live because we don't want the same thing to happen. It's almost like you could read between the lines in that case of, thank God this is not us. Or how do we make sure this isn't us? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So I think uh, there's been... Uh, it, it's been used as a case study by lots of marketers, um, especially you know uh, business to consumer marketers as well. So, um, well, and, and we've it, even done a, a blog post that includes it in that because yep. we saw that as the most recent example of many examples yep. of where customer data and customer experience has just gone horribly wrong because people have not thought through mm. the implications of the processes they put in place. Well, absolutely. We all, as customers, um, give away so much of our data in our day-to-day digital lives, you know, mm. the way in which we, we engage with uh, with the world through technology, whether it's your computer in your office at home or your mobile. Every time you turn it on, you are sharing some data about yourself um, with someone else out there. Mm. Um, if you're using Facebook, um, the amount of data that you're sharing about yourself is immense. I don't think any of us really understand how much um, and what that's actually being mm. used for, but um, most of us are probably comfortable with um, what we're, you know, what we're sharing there. But when you do business with a corporate, private business, which is publicly listed, who is, you know, whose focus is to uh, drive returns for shareholders, um, you're giving away a lot of your data um, for, in some cases, questionable purposes. Mm. Um, and if you give your data away to a corporate, um, you certainly hope that the experience that they deliver back to you is positive, constructive, and you see some value off the off the back of it. Um, in this particular situation, considering BP has a lot of data of mine, um, as well as anyone else that uses the BP Me app, yeah. um, to suddenly defer to calling the cops on someone that was a loyal, registered and engaged customer is a crazy business process um, and obviously a flaw in um, their operating model for um, you know, putting this together. So um, it was actually really interesting to see the backlash against uh, you know, the, that particular brand. Well, yeah, because um, as I said before, I, I use the BP Me app. Mm. I'm also a Velocity frequent flyer Mm. and I got a uh, promotion that said I could get five five points per litre if I went and filled up before this date. It was in three or four days time. So it had all the good things about an offer. It was a good offer. It had a time limit and all I had to do was fill up the tank. Mm. It was Sunday morning which was the last day of the offer. Mm. And I was out driving, I was low on fuel, and I put into the BP app, where's my nearest petrol station? I drove Mm. to it, it was closed. Now the app didn't tell me that. So where's the next nearest one? I drove to that, it was closed. I put it in again, and I drove to that and it was closed. Let me guess, it was probably the last time you used the BP Me app after that. So I, yep. you know, I, I went and filled up at Keltex yep. 
and I'm not going to, the next time they send me a, um, a any sort of offer. But yep. the other thing was, um, you cannot redeem your Velocity offer through the BP Map. So yep. I'm just wondering, did they rush this to market without thinking it through? Have you had any feedback from BP? Um, so I actually didn't realize that you don't earn points on your credit card when you do app transactions. You actually have to take your credit card into the store and use the actual card itself in the in the store to, to earn the points. So that, that um, that's another learning experience for, for me. And to be honest, the um, acqui- you know points acquisition is probably less of a focus for for me personally. Mm. Anyway, when I when I go shopping, um, uh, yeah. So you know, from that perspective, I just know. like upgrades. That's all. Well, <laughs> we all do, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yep, to- totally, uh, yeah. totally get that. Um, the response from BP was, um, was uh, I think, interesting, but I, I actually have to give them a fair bit of credit um, for how they handled this particular episode through their crisis management, um, uh, through, through crisis management anyway. Published on the Friday, Saturday I could see it was going crazy, like 50,000 views inside the first on 18 hours or something like that. And I was laughing, I'm going, God, this is ridiculous. <laughs> how's, how's this happening? Um, and then I started thinking, God, I wonder if anyone from BP will um, recognise this. And then I noticed people that I'm connected with um, starting to share this with people from BP and different functions at BP. So I thought it's only a matter of time before someone from Could BP Could you imagine on a Saturday you're sitting there working for BP and one of your connections tags you in, the, in it and you just go, yeah. oh, God. And I think that's exactly what happened because I was contacted by someone from BP on the Sunday morning um, <laughs> via LinkedIn. And uh, you know, the person from BP um, did say to me, um, Ben, we've seen your, um, your post. Um, immediately want to say, hey, I'm sorry. Um, we have a team um, working on this at the moment. Um, can I get your contact details because someone will be in touch with you um, on Monday? And I was like, great, I'm more than happy to share with you um, my personal, you know, my, my, um, my email address and phone number so that, um, you know, you can come back to me. So I was, I, at that point- How is that lifetime uh, supply of fuel going? <laughs> oh, I would certainly hope that's what I was going to, going to it was so funny. Some of the comments were, Sharpie, you need to go and ask for a year's worth of free fuel or something like that. My, my interest in this was less about the um, What's personal financial return. I, I actually got to a point of thinking, oh, I'm actually more interested now in um, partly how big this post goes because I'm just personally fascinated by that. Um, but secondly, I'm also fascinated to see um, how BP handle uh, this from a crisis management perspective. So what that uh, what that looks like. Um, so B- I have to give BP a lot of credit. They communicated um, back to me very clearly and they gave me clear timelines on where they're at, what they're doing, when they would respond to me, and they delivered against those deadlines um, in every particular case. Um, I did have a couple of conversations with someone very senior in communications at BP um, in Australia, and uh, the conversation was great. Um, uh, They explained the situation and why it happened, um, and then also explained some of the work that they're doing to solve that and ensure that it doesn't happen again. and gave me an opportunity to ask a whole bunch of questions as well. So um, I actually said to um, uh, to a person from BP that I 
Um, my interest at this point is to, you know, kind of almost see the business process for a crisis see what's management. unfolding behind yeah. the, the scenes. And I said also, I would love to be able to close the social media loop on this by saying, hey, despite a shitty situation at the start, um, the way in which it was handled. Um, which you have done, haven't you? Which you've I have done, you've yeah. written a post on LinkedIn that actually, you know, as you say, gives credit where credit's due. That's right. For their ability to deal with it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's right. Mind you, I think most brands would prefer not to be very good at crisis management and actually minimise the uh, the risk in the first place, wouldn't they? A- absolutely. Um, but, you know, if you think about um, strategy and risk for any business, um, uh, risk is something that presents in multiple, in, in numerous ways. Um, when it comes to um, PR risk, um, there always needs to be a process put in place um, so that you can defer to something and be able to work with um, issues when they when, when they pop up. So I, I interpreted from the outside that BP had um, a risk mitigation strategy and a process to cover um, issues, you know, PR issues like this. And um, it was escalated to a very senior person within um, the BP marketing team mm-hmm. um, to handle because it was, you know, it's obviously something that had become very high profile very quickly. So Ben, what would you say from from the experience and the conversations you've had with BP without revealing anything confidential yep. uh, would be the three sort of insights that, uh, that a, a corporation organisation would take away from this? Yep. Um, so... The first thing I'd say is technology is very exciting um, and you have to use technology to not just deliver a good uh, customer experience, but to, you know, run your business. Mm. Um, But when you are opening your technology up to the outside world, especially um, the mass market consumer, you need to ensure that um, the process that you've put in place in how your consumers are going to interact with you is absolutely locked down. And when you launch any product, you need to... Um, uh, road test all of these different versions. You need to test, test, test again every potential variable um, and you need to ensure that um, the QA process um, is locked down before you put something into, into market. In, yeah. into market. Don't, don't rush it to market. Don't, don't rush it to market. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. Um, through the testing process, it's going to identify some area, potential areas of failure um, which is fine because you've got th- you've got some things to, to work on, um, but there needs to be an approach taken to say, okay, I've got a potential point of failure here. When this happens, we need to have a very quick process to respond um, yeah. and patch or, or, or solve the issue. Um, the other thing which I think um, is very, very important, um, and this is uh, very much in the case of this episode with BP, is there's staff training required um, so that they understand um, how to operate the technology in the first place. Now, the the issue in this particular case was part human and part technology. Um, the way in which the BPME app works, from my understanding, is you obviously turn up the service station, you select the you know service station you're at the pump. Um, it validates that you know you're there and that you know you've got your credit cards uh, attached, and then it tells you to start work. You know, start filling up with fuel. Up to that point. Not much happens inside the service station until you actually until you actually um, finish filling up and you put the bowser back into the or the nozzle back into the the bowser. Now, at that point, the service station attendant um, should be notified through their technology that. 
there's a transaction, an app transaction that's happened on a particular pump and they need to close it off. So they have to press a button to close it off so that the charge can be pushed through to mm-hmm. the app and the credit card attached. In this particular situation, um, that technology piece somewhat failed, but the service station attendant as well um, was not trained to handle that that, p- failure. that that type of that type of failure. So yeah. the thing that the service station attendant did was go, "Oh, this is a problem. I think someone's driven off with fuel. I'm going to look through my camera. That's who it is. Notify the cops." Um, whereas what they should have done is go, oh, well, it looks like there's a technology issue. Um, it's app related. We obviously know their details. There needs to be a slightly different approach taken to um, recover the, mo- you know, the money or to ensure that the transaction happens. So the staff training piece is, is essential. Yeah, because it can be the weakest link. That's exactly right. Human beings, always the weakest link. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know what? Um, yes, but technology can also be the weakest yeah. link as well. And technology, when it's built, um, is hopefully designed to succeed. But, you know, technology breaks all the time. And it's how your human interacts with the technology at that point is the thing that can deliver either a good or bad experience. Exactly. Everyone that uh, talks about uh, AI being the future of uh, you know all of these processes mm. just has to go back and watch two thousand one: A Space Odyssey, because uh, you know I'm not sure Hal was exactly the right uh, right AI to be launched into space. Well, AI is a very interesting topic, and I think we've we've been speaking about AI and machine learning for. Um, for a couple of years now. Um, I don't think most most people probably don't get a good sense of what it really means um, or how uh, what the application is, is how you can actually use AI. Um, you actually, know, you, uh, we've been talking about it in marketing yep. and in commercial world. Yep. But you know, artificial intelligence has been a topic since the 1950s. Well, and the whole idea, when they started talking about the concept of computers... They were already thinking about what will it take to have a computer be able to outthink a human being. Well, did um didn't uh, Watson the IBM computer um, beat the chess champion? Yeah, multiple times. Yeah. So, um, uh, but the computer is trained to operate in a certain type hmm. of way. So. Um, I'm sure there's ways of breaking that. If you test it on a very narrow basis, yeah. but uh, you know, the human mind still has a very broad palette of, of operations that it can actually undertake. But eventually, technology will get to that point. But that's probably uh, for another podcast, huh? I think that's a whole other topic and it's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Look, I really appreciate you coming in and uh, yeah. sharing that story. I have to tell you that... Uh, yeah, at least for a while you're going to be known as the BPME app guy yep. or uh, the the LinkedIn because you certainly disrupted my Friday afternoon. I, <laughs> I think I saw it about 19 minutes after you posted it. I was just sitting there flicking through and uh, it got my attention. So, you know, it'd be great if you could distill uh, what it takes to become a viral sensation because I think... Uh, Lots of agencies and brands try that and uh, fail miserably. But uh, thanks a lot, Ben. No worries. Thanks, Darren. 